0: Before we come to
1: today's broadcast, I must apologize that the message ends abruptly and somewhat prematurely. This is due to a problem with the audio. I know that the Lord will still use his word, and it's certainly our prayer today that as this message goes forward, it would be used to revive the Lord's work in his church in these days. Well, let's turn together tonight in the Word of God to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter three to the fifth of these letters from Christ to his beloved, uh, those beloved that reside in Sardis. Uh, Revelation chapter three, reading from the verse number one. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what are, I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names. Even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. In the history, of the church, and men and women have often wrestled with the question, what do I do when my church is in poor health? Do I stay or should I leave? What do I do when I find my church in a state of spiritual trouble? If I give one example, it might be the name of J.C. Ryle, the bishop of Liverpool. Many of you find Ryle's writings so very, very helpful. His expository thoughts in the gospel have been translated and spread far and wide across the world. Many wonderful sermons that we have recorded for us in books. And yet he was a minister, indeed a bishop, in the Church of England at a time when that church was already troubled with great apostasy and ecumenism. You read his own work, Warnings to the Churches, and you will see just how deep the trouble already was placing, was already in place in the Church of England. Yet Ryle stayed. He sought reform and revival. Others left. I can't speak infallibly, but I suspect I would have left. They were difficult times, and yet Ryle chose to stay. Now it's not my aim tonight to determine the rights and wrongs of such a dilemma as Ryle faced. I'd simply ask us all to recognize that there are times when true believers live and worship in a dying or a dead church. In fact, it's always the case that there are true believers living and worshiping in a church that is full of problems and sin. And so the question often is, as a matter of timing, I think we all accept there's a time when leaving is required But the debate will be as to when that time will come, and there are genuine believers who will differ. Now, I firmly, you you could not be a minister in our denomination without believing in the importance of separation from liberalism and ecumenism. No choice. The Word of God is denied. Any desire to fellowship with the Roman Catholic Church, these are things that cannot be countenanced and require separation. So, leaving that issue aside, but yet there are still sound churches confessionally, but they are marked by tremendous problems and difficulties. And so the challenge comes, when do you leave and when do you stay? Because whilst I believe in separation, I also believe in revival and in reform. I believe that a church that is struggling can be revived. I believe that our church can be revived. There can be a fanning and flames in the work of God, whereby we would experience things that we have not known heretofore. Because there may be times when a church is unhealthy, and the true believer seeking to walk with God may exist in that church at such a time, and the temptation would be to leave. But it may be the Lord's will to be part of revival and reformation. The lesson from the church in Sardis is that this is a dead church, but yet the Lord encourages our remnant to be faithful, repent, and bring about reformation. We're not giving a lot of details, but we are told this church is a name that they live and are dead, verse number 1. And yet in that church there are those... And we see them in verse number four, who have not defiled their garments. There are those whose names are known to the Lord. And he encourages them to set about the work of spiritual, biblical reformation and revival. This is a negative letter. It brings words of strong condemnation from the Lord. And yet it also serves as a tremendous encouragement as to the Lord's will in order to bring revival, revival in the church. And to that regard I believe we should encourage us. But we should begin with the rebuke. First of all, there is a rebuke from the Lord. Note the reputation this church has. Thou hast a name. That word name speaks of their, their fame. What are they known as? Well, they're known as a church that lives. Again, we don't have a lot of details as to why that name was spread about. Perhaps it was because they they didn't have Jezebel or Balaam or the Nicolaitans. Perhaps they were those who were exempt from false teachers in their midst, and they looked like a, a vibrant, healthy, if I can use a modern term, a vibrant, healthy evangelical church. They had that name. Noise abroad in the community. Oh, what a church that is. Tremendous church. For the Lord, the Lord sees beyond the external facade, uh, and he makes this pronouncement, and art dead. Now, we we, we see some reasons whereby the Lord can say that. Verse number two, it says, For I have not found thy works perfect before God. This word perfect, it's, it's not talking about sinless perfection. It's used in a similar way that Paul used the term about maturity or completion. And so the idea here may well be that their working for God was was less than wholehearted. They were deficient in some ways. This is a dead church that has deficiencies. It's less than what the Lord expects. Whether it was a case that they were just doing a little, getting by, and perhaps it was a matter of, well, uh, we're a church that must worship God. Let's just do it for one hour a week. But let's not push ourselves anymore. We're, we'll meet and we'll have a great time for one hour, but we're not going to exert ourselves anymore. And perhaps it's a matter of church evangelism and they'll, they'll come to a, a time in the year and they'll, they'll maybe give out some gospel tracts around the Christmas season perhaps and they'll, they'll tick the box in evangelistic church for the rest of the year. They do nothing. I, I don't know. I don't want to speculate to it too much, but you get a sense that their works are lacking. There's a deficiency, there's, there's a lack of maturity, a lack of wholeheartedness, and ultimately the Lord is not pleased. This is the idea of the works being perfect can have the sense of the works not satisfying Christ. And this idea of fulfillment is almost involved here that these are these are uh, this is a church that is not pleasing the Lord. We have some clues as to the problem. On the one hand, they are complacent. And on the other hand, they are compromised. These are two clues that we have regarding this church. They're complacent. We know that they're not watching. Verse number two, be watchful. There's a sense in which they are not spiritually vigilant. They've they've stopped to watch. Verse number three, if therefore thou shalt not watch. Many of the commentators suggest that the thought here has to do with Sardis itself. Sardis at one point was the king city of the state of Lydia. It was thought to be impregnable. In fact, it was known as impregnable Sardis, built surrounded by cliffs. It reached its glory in the 6th century BC, and it was considered unassailable. But on two occasions, it was conquered both by stealth and surprise. They weren't watchful. They weren't vigilant. And the Lord is saying to this church, if you're not spiritually vigilant, you're going to be destroyed and conquered as a church. But Christ says, I'm going to be the one that's going to do it. I will come as a thief, and you won't know what's going to happen. It's it's drawing back to their history, the, the warning of a church that is not spiritually vigilant. They don't see the trouble around them. So church is also compromised. There are those who are said, verse number four, these few names which have not defiled their garments. This idea of going back to Old Testament concepts, the defilement of the garments, referring to a life of sin. It may well refer to some manner of, of immorality, idolatry, worldliness in some form or other. Again, we don't have a lot of details, but we're seeing a church that's marked by, by compromise. And so the Lord looks at this church. Remember, a church is made up of people. It's not just some amorphous company, undefined. These are people with names. Verse number four. There's a few names, but the Lord knows all the names. And the church can be defined by the, the state of affairs of the, of the multitudes, and they're in the church, but they're complacent spiritually and they're compromised. You see, a living church is vigilant, zealous, and holy vigilant of all spiritual dangers, wholehearted in the glory of Christ and wholly separate from sin. That's what a living church is all about. Such is unfamiliar territory for many. The churches in America, by and large, have become complacent as to their freedoms and their privileges. They stop watching all manner of spiritual dangers They've embraced a lack of holiness, Sabbath desecration, poor, low views of family and marriage. We're living in times that are profoundly unholy in the church. And people give the Lord their lip service for a small time every week, but we cannot say their works are perfect for God's. That's generally true. That's not a, a statement of, of any, uh, any speculation. That is a state of affairs. And so you have many walking about our towns and they are Christians and they say they are Christians. But in many ways, the church in Sardis is the most relevant to the day in which we live. In this land, you've had a name that you live, but you're dead. And do not dare think that we are not also part of that mass. Don't pretend that we've got it all sorted out. And these problems aren't true in our, own, in our own churches. It's a rebuke from the Lord, which leads in the second place to the responsibility of the remnant. The remnant I've mentioned several times. Verse number four, there's a few names. Praise God, the Lord knows their names. They're not mentioned here, but they're known to the Lord, and he knows all about them, and they have they've not defiled their garments. This is the remnant, a holy band in the midst of spiritual declension. And to such in the church, the Lord brings a word that there are several commands given. There's a command to be vigilant, to strengthen the things that remain, to remember, remember verse number three, how that's received and heard. They are to hold fast. They are to repent. They're not to defile their garments. These are things, commands, that highlight responsibility. And what we see in these commands, I believe, is we see a pathway for church revival here. We see God's divinely appointed pathway for spiritual reformation. And the remnant, those who remain, they were to embark on this renewal. All is not yet lost for this church. It's close. It's very close. Christ is bringing this word of warning, the candlestick will be soon removed but there's a final opportunity for them to deal with the business of spiritual reform, and they should get down to these things. So what are these principles for revival and reformation? And these are true for all ages. Well, first of all, revival starts in the remnant. Verse number two, be watchful, and listen, and strengthen the things which remain. There's still still some life. Uh, If you like the the nursery, the the tree nursery, there are saplings growing and the wind comes through and some of the saplings are destroyed and they're uprooted, but there are some that remain. They need to be strengthened. There's the importance of the, the remnant ensuring that they're strong in the sight of God, that they put roots downward and grow upwards. That idea of everyone who wants to serve the Lord, that they're determined to know their stuff, to know the Word of God and be strong in faith. Starts with the remnant. Verse 5, for these are those who have not defiled their garments. Oh, isn't there this need for renewal? We sang the hymn, O Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee, send the revival, start the work in me. Isn't that that not our prayer that every time we say the Lord, revive thy work, O Lord, that we immediately think to ourselves, I need that revival in my own soul? Is that not our desire? Oh, revival starts in the remnant. We see this in church history. God puts his hand upon a small group and they seek the Lord. That's the start of revival. May God do that in our day. Secondly, this matter of revival and reformation it requires personal responsibility. I mentioned all the various commands that are given here. There are a couple that are particularly important. Be watchful. Be watchful, and then down in verse number three, hold fast. It's easy to complain about the spiritual declension of others. It's easy to criticize everybody else. Here the church are encouraged, just you watch your own soul. Be spiritually vigilant. The idea of watching, of course, in the New Testament, always comes with prayer, watch and pray. We saw it on Sunday. It comes together, the spiritual vigilance of watching for the things that harm the soul. That's what's watching here. Again, this, this impregnable city, Sardis, they weren't watching for the enemies coming up the cliff and attacking the city. They were sleeping in their beds, if you like. And, and so we are often spiritually. We, we're blind to the dangers the dangers of social media, the dangers of false spirituality. The, the dangers that are around us in a world that is rampant in materialism, we, we feel to see all the dangers. We've got to watch and pray. We've got to hold fast. That language in Revelation is opposite to falling away and apostasizing. You've got to be strong. Don't give up on the Lord now. Though others are, make sure you hold fast and endure to the end personal responsibility. Thirdly, it requires repentance. They're told. Hold fast and repent. It seems to be the case that even the remnant have they've been tainted by some of these things. And then they've got to be careful that they deal with their own sin before they begin to work through the sins of others and just make sure you've dealt with your own sin. Spirit of contrition, sorrow for sin, confession to the Lord, and the determination to stop those things which offend the Lord. Fourthly, this revival requires a returning to first principles. Verse number three, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. Partly, this is to do with them remembering how they first were converted. Don't forget what happened in the, in the wonder of God's grace when the, the gospel messenger came with beautiful feet and you heard the good tidings and you were saved and the joy that that brought. Don't forget that. I think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, I declare unto you the gospel which I preach unto you, which also you have received. And when you stand by which also you are saved, if you keep memory what I preach unto you, unless you have believed in vain. The Lord is telling this church in Sardis, go back to basics. Go back to first principles. It's, it's always a concerning sign when the Lord's people want to move away from the simple preaching of Christ. Oh, and they want to run in all manner of directions, conferences on this and that nothing, and, the thing, and their, their desire is to move away from the fundamentals of Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second we shouldn't want to know the deep things in the Word of God. We want, we want the meat of the Word. But this Bible is all about Christ. And so the deep things must bring us back time and time again to the rudiments of the gospel. You see if we if we go away from the basics our love for Christ diminishes. And we're susceptible to sin. So this matter of spiritual revival starts in the remnant, involves taking personal responsibility, requires repentance, involves a returning to first principles, and finally and fifthly it involves relying on the spirit of God. There's a tremendous encouragement here, verse number 1, regarding Christ. These things saith he, that hath the seven spirits of God. Remember that reference, and that goes back to chapter 1. Revelation 1, and verse number 4. Regarding Christ, John says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And we saw at that time as a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the seven is not the seven individual spirits, but the fullness that is within the Spirit of God, the fullness of blessing which he brings. And so in each of these letters, Christ describes himself in a way that is particularly relevant to their needs. We saw that. Here we understand that what they need to remember was that Christ that had the seven stars, the messengers, the ministers of the gospel, also has the seven spirits teaching us again that revival comes as God sends his spirit upon the preaching of the word and it's the Spirit of God that brings my revival. Oh Holy Ghost, revival comes from me. That's so what the Lord's saying here. The Lord's describing what this church needs. It does need the breath of the Spirit of God. And Christ is the one to whom we go asking for the promise of the Spirit of God to be poured out upon us. Oh, Sardis, thou hast a name that thou livest under our dead. What are you going to do about it? You must must seek to follow these principles of spiritual renewal, revival, and reformation. If you do not, the church is done for. And so it's a word for all of us. We take these things seriously. We understand our own needs. Not worrying about everybody else, but think about our own needs. I need to deal with my own sin. I need to go back to the basis of Christ. I need to rely upon the Spirit of God. That's the responsibility of the remnant. And thirdly and finally, we see the reward for the faithful. As is so often the case in the Word of God, we are given tremendous encouragements to spiritual diligence. The Lord brings a command, and He gives us an incentive to obey the command Verse 4, thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And and then begins this this list of rewards and promises given again to those that are faithful, to those that overcome. Oh, they are worthy in Christ. They're worthy of these blessings. They're in union with Christ, and in union with Christ, they've they've overcome these temptations. They've endured to the end. And there are four promises given to them. I'm just going to Bullet point them when they were finished. There is the promise of communion. Look what it says. They shall walk with me in white. I want to walk with the Lord today. And yet I know that as I do so today, there's always that sense of sin impairing the walk that I know with the Lord. But the promise is when I overcome, when you overcome, the promise that you will walk with Christ in light perfect revelation. No clouds over your eyes, no deficiencies in in seeing Christ and his glory, but communing with him and delighting in that. There's communion here. There's also the promise of clothing. Verse number five, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. White is the color of heaven. It's a white throne White cloud, a white stone, white is heavenly color. It denotes both purity and victory. Purity, the Old Testament image of white linens. The victory, the center of the cult of the time, the, the victors wore the white. That's the promise here. The Lord clothing us ultimately with his righteousness. Isn't that true? We know that in the Lord that we are we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, we're accepted in him. There's also the promise of eternal citizenship. Verse number five, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. The book of life is the, the register of God's people, the elect, the reference being blotted out. Well, if you died in Sardis, your name was taken out of the city register. But if you die in Christ, your name is not removed. You're never taken out of the register of God's eternal city. That's your promise. That's your assurance. No possibility of ever being lost. And finally, there is the promise of a confession. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This is truly amazing. Remember the warnings the Lord gave to the disciples in the likes of Mark chapter 8. Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adult that is sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed. When we're ashamed of Christ, when we're ashamed of our witness for Christ, when we're ashamed of, of Christ's faithfulness in our lives, when we cast aspersions to the Lord's faithfulness, the warning is he will be ashamed of us. And so the Lord tells the disciples, if you're going to follow me, take up the cross daily and follow me. Deny self and follow Christ. That's what it is to be a child of God. But to such you are faithful. There is the promise, Luke chapter 12, verse 8. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. What an amazing thing it is that in the company of the redeemed, In all the glories of heaven, the Lord would know you by your name and say, he is mine. He has not denied me. He's been faithful to the end. He belongs to me.